Let's open our Bibles to that first chapter of James. We should be called Bible Christians. We should be called Bible Baptists. Except we do not mean that in the sense of that particular segment of the Baptist called Bible Baptists. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And that's why we try to jam our assemblies so full of Scripture. We began with Philippians chapter 2 and read verses 12 through 16. We've had read to us sections of John 3, John 5, Ephesians 2. We've looked at Psalm 1. And now we get to the preaching of God's Word from James 1. If you come with your heart prepared, if you come with enough sleep the night before, if you come delighting in the law of the Lord, you are glad for all the Scripture that is read. Because you love the Word of God, you know that it is the Word of God in truth, and it's not the Word of men. You'd rather hear that Word than any other Word. And let's keep our services that way. Let's jam them full of the Word of God. If someone comes among us as a visitor, if God has regenerated them and engrafted the Word into their hearts, they're going to love what they hear and see. I appreciate the amens that are given during and at the end of the readings because that shows the agreement of the congregation with the reading. If those come among us, that the Word of God is boring to their hearts and minds, they won't want to come back. Thank you, Lord. So we have a, a nice little way of inviting the children of God to stay with us and sending the others packing down the road to Brookwood and other churches in town that will not press you with very much Scripture. We don't mean that haughtily. We mean that painfully, that so many have turned away from the Word of God. James chapter 1. There are seven lessons in this chapter. And if you heard Psalm 1 already this morning, you're saying, show me, show me something from James 1 that I can do to please God better. that will keep me out of the counsel of the ungodly and the way of sinners and out of a scorner's seat. Teach me from God's Word this morning. I want to go back to Lesson 2 for just a couple of minutes. We did Lesson 1 and Lesson 4 last Lord's Day, and I skipped over 2 and 3 in detail. I'm not going to do 2 and 3 in detail. I gave you a, a good summary of them two weeks ago. But I want to go back and look at that wisdom for just a moment. So let's look at verse 5 of James chapter 1. That The second lesson lies in verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Wisdom here, I believe by its context, should definitely include an emphasis on wisdom when we're being pressed. When the Lord has sent temptations into our life to refine us, you're being pressed. You're the most discouraged at that time because He's bringing negative events against you. And he's doing it for your profit. We went over that last Sunday. But as those negative events come against you, you have the greatest time in your life to doubt your ability to handle them. You have the greatest degree of confusion about what you ought to do and how to please God and how to handle the situation. Sometimes it will press you to the point of despair. And so I believe this fifth verse is here, right in this location, to tell us that this is primarily an offer of liberal wisdom for those that are being pressed under trials and afflictions. Therefore, because of that, when something goes wrong in your life, health, finances, children, marriage, 
anyone else, job, and you're being pressed and you know it, our response should be, Lord, I know what you're doing. I'm thankful for what you're doing. Because I know you're refining me to lead me to be perfect. Wanting nothing. I know that. But I want to handle this trial and test in the way you want me to. So give me the wisdom to be able to do it. Lead and guide me liberally so that I will know how to face this difficulty that I haven't faced before and it's very hard for me and I'm very discouraged by it. But I'm thankful and I'm counting it all joy that you're going to perfect me and I know as David said many times, you're going to deliver me out of this. I know that. I believe that. But before you deliver me out of it, give me wisdom so that I'll handle it the right way. I believe that's what the fifth verse is there for. And I want to tell you a secret. Um, if you will face temptations that way, sometimes you will be tested in ways, I mean, they will shake you to the bottom of your soul. Drop down to your knees and tell the Lord, I know what you're doing. I am trembling because I don't feel the strength or the ability or the knowledge to know how to do this. I know what you're doing. I'm thankful for it. I'm counting it joy because I want to be perfect in your sight. But give me wisdom. Show me how to handle this. Teach me what to do. Because I'm not sure. In fact, I don't have a clue. In fact, like Psalm 107, I'm at my wit's end. Are you thankful for words like that in the Bible? Do you ever get to your wit's end? That's biblical language. Do you know what we had read to us last Sunday? Do you remember it? Psalm 107. Do you remember who? Do you remember when? Do you remember what it said? Ships on great seas at wit's end? Does the Lord deliver them to their desired haven? Praise the Lord He does. So you go into prayer with that confidence, but you say, Lord, show me what to do. Because I'm at my wit's end. But you know what? God doesn't have a wit's end. His wit is infinite. His understanding is as high as the heavens. So you can trust in His wit when yours runs out. Ours runs out quickly, doesn't it? Quickly and easily. I believe that's what you ought to know about verse 5. I believe it covers all wisdom. Because it's a general promise. But by its context, we know the Lord is really giving us some comfort in the time of temptation. All wisdom rests with God, so when He offers it liberally, you ought to take advantage of the offer. Solomon's not, I mean, the Lord's not going to come to you just like He did Solomon in the night and say, ask what you would. I'll give you whatever you want. But He sure offered us the same wisdom right here, and He'll give it liberally. The word liberally means He's going to get it, give it generously. He's going to give a whole lot of it, not just a little. You say, well, I don't feel like I have very much. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to say to you, I feel like you haven't prayed for it. Because based on the authority of God's Word, if you ask for it, He's going to give it to you. And He's going to give it to you liberally. And then it says He'll not upbraid you for it. He will not criticize you for asking for wisdom. He'll never make you feel small or dumb for asking for wisdom. He'll never rebuke you that you haven't used the wisdom He's given you before. And why should He give you more? He'll give it to you. If you come to Him the way I just described, describing your temptation thanking Him for it, telling Him you know it's good, and you're counting it all joy, while you're crying, please give me wisdom, Lord. He will give you wisdom. He will give you wisdom. 
He will give you wisdom quickly. And He'll give you wisdom liberally. And He will uphold your soul. And He will not let it be dashed to the ground. He will show you what to do. He will give you a way out. He will do it. I don't know how to tell you my secret. It is no secret. It's right here. My secret is that it works. I know these verses. And I know that many of you know them as well. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Turn your Bibles with me to Mark 11. You can always hold your finger at James 1, but let's look at Mark 11. Let him ask in faith. If you don't get wisdom, then you didn't believe that God would give it. Because His promise is sure. There's no question about God's promise. But there is question about our faith at times. All you have to do is believe. And if you're not believing very well, tell Him, Lord, help my unbelief. He likes that kind of a prayer. Mark 11, verse 22. Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. God can do anything. God will do everything that you ask Him for believing. Have faith in God. Is that deep? Do we need to dive into the Greek and try to figure those words out? Have faith in God. God is omnipotent in His power, omniscient in His wisdom, omnipresent in His presence. He's everywhere. He is a present help. A very present help in time of need. Have faith in God. Verse 23, for verily, that is of a truth, I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that these things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. A mountain. I've told you as a child I used to walk out of my house and play in a field, and I had a view of a mountain nearby called Peach Mountain. We had Peach Mountain, you have Paris Mountain. I heard this verse read and preached from a pulpit that my father occupied, and I remember standing in that field and trying to, there was a lake nearby called Portage Lake, You can look it up on a map. And I would ask the Lord to put Peach Mountain in Portage Lake. And nothing would happen. I said, I'm I'm believing this. I'm believing it. But you know, I was asking to consume it upon my lust as an idiotic child. This mountain here is a temptation in your life. Are you with me now? This is a temptation God has brought. A mountain you don't think you can climb and get over. And if you're facing a mountain that you don't think you can climb and get over then all you've got to do is believe that when you tell it to get out of the way, the Lord is going to take it out of the way. He will take it out of the way. This is not literal mountain throwing. No one in the Bible ever threw mountains around. This is getting rid of those trials and temptations in your life and difficulties by the wisdom that God grants. But let Him ask in faith. Notice the importance of the words here. Have faith in God. If when you're asking you believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. What things did he say in James 1.5? I will give you liberal wisdom and I will not upbraid you for it. If you believe that and it doesn't take some deep, mysterious, monk-type faith. 
Monks don't have faith anyway or they wouldn't be in a monastery. All it takes is, God, I know that you can do this and I know your word has promised it, so I know you're going to do it. And just get up from your knees and go about your activities and you'll have strength in your soul and wisdom in your heart for the event that you just prayed about. I know it. Anyone else here know it? Do you know it? The Lord will do it. Look at Mark 9. Come back just a couple of pages. We're talking about faith at the moment. Because it said in James 1, 6, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed up and down, back and forth the waves go, and so are people that don't have faith. If you always trust in God, then you're not going to be tossed around like that by the circumstances of life. Storms come in every life, but we don't have to be tossed because we are set on the rock of having faith in God. That is our rock. Mark 9, verse 23. Jesus saith unto him, this is the father of the lunatic. Mark 9, 23. Jesus saith, Jesus said unto him, excuse me. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible. To him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Have you ever felt like that before? That you're not believing enough? Then tell the Lord you believe. Because just the fact that you're praying shows that you believe. But then tell him to help your unbelief. He'll accept that prayer. You know the rest of the chapter, don't you? Do you think that lunatic son was healed? Or did the, did the Lord upbraid the father because he didn't have enough faith and say, come back in a month when you've worked your faith up to a higher pitch? He heard the prayer. I believe. Help thou my unbelief. It's easy to get wisdom, isn't it? Come back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. That was verse 6. Verse 7 says, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. The Lord has no obligation to give anything to the man that doesn't believe that God is able to help you. God can help you no matter how old you are or how young you are. If you have any problem in your life, take it to God and tell Him, I need your help. He'll help you. Believe. If you don't believe, He's not going to help you. All you have to do is believe that He will help. Have faith in God. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. James helps us a lot about prayer. After we get through the whole book of James, we're going to see that James tries to help us about praying. Right here, he's telling us that we do not receive the things that we ask for because we don't ask in faith. Later on, he's going to tell us that we don't receive the things that we ask for because we ask to consume them upon our lusts. Then he's going to tell us that we don't have anything because we don't ask for it. That's how simple it is to James. If you'd ask, you'd have it. And when you ask, don't be like a child trying to throw Peach Mountain into Portage Lake. Be like a man, and you're facing a real mountain in your life, and pray for God to take it out of the way. But ask in faith. If you ask in faith, God will hear that prayer and answer it, and He will answer it liberally. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, like the waves of a sea, up and down, back and forth, up and down. Just look around and look at the people that are up and down, up and down. Up one week, down the next week. Up one month, down the next month. They're double-minded. They do not have the faith that gives stability. Faith is a rock. 
faith lays, lays hold of God's promises so that you are surely tied down. Your anchor is set. Your feet do not slide. No matter what comes, the stronger your faith. We don't want to be like that. You know, sometimes we feel some of those motions of waves in our hearts. That's when we need to drop to our knees, tell the Lord we believe, ask Him to help our unbelief, have faith in God, and get up. And go be cheerful, trusting in God, believing that what He has said He is going to do, He surely will do. Let's go to lesson number 3 in verse 9. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. The lesson is in verses 9 down through 11. 9 through 11. The status of your life sometimes can lead to temptation. If you're poor, you may think that God's against you, and He's not for you, and you could be tempted to despair, tempted to resent, tempted to be bitter about your poor state in life. But this wonderful passage here, this lesson, this third lesson of James, is telling us, and I've taught you before, but I want you to remember it. Let the brother of low degree, and this is low in monetary means. How do we know that? How do we know that low degree means poor financially? Because of the next verse. Because we have a parallelism here of two different kinds of men among those believers James was writing. He was writing to the poor and rich saints. But... Let the brother of low degree, the poor brother, rejoice in that he is exalted. Not that he shall be in heaven necessarily, but that he is exalted right now as a child of the king. He should rejoice in that fact. A poor man in the things of this world can be a rich man in faith, and which means more to God. James chapter 2 and verse 5 is going to tell us that God's chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. So a poor man in the things of this world can be a rich man in the things of heaven by being rich in faith. Poor Lazarus was a whole lot better off than the rich man that was faring sumptuously. A poor saint is a child of God. He's a friend of the king. He's a joint heir with Jesus Christ of God himself. If you were never educated very well, you know things the wise cannot even see. If you live in a little shack here, you have a place being prepared in heaven. If your father left you nothing, you have an eternal inheritance that's coming. You can joyfully be a slave in this world, knowing you're Christ's free man. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul taught the saints at Corinth, don't try to change your calling in this life. If, if you were converted as a slave, stay a slave. If somebody offers you to make you free, go ahead and use it. Because you can probably serve the Lord better as a free man. But, it, but he concludes his whole argument about whether you're free or not by saying, if you're a slave, you're still the Lord's free man. That's 1 Corinthians 7. There's so much blessing so that the, the brother of low degree can rejoice because of the spiritual things God's given him. The next verse says, but the rich. But the rich. Now I love ellipsis. And ellipses. And ellipsis are words left out because you are supposed to be smart enough to figure out that they're there. See, it doesn't have a verb in there about the rich. But what is the verb that is missing that's in verse 9 that should be in verse 10, but the Lord knows that you should know what it is so He doesn't waste ink by writing it again. What's the verb that the rich man should be doing? The rich man should be rejoicing. And why is he rejoicing? In that he is made low. 
Rich saints learn through the Bible and God saving their souls that riches are vain, unlike their worldly counterparts who spend their whole lives accumulating all of a sudden to hear one night, Thou fool! Tonight thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those riches be tomorrow? The rich brother. He knows better than that. So he's thankful and he's rejoicing that he knows that riches are very temporary, cannot give lasting satisfaction, and are something he should not set his affection upon. That's a reason to rejoice. A rich brother is humbled by his profane sins. He knows he's low. The Lord has put him down in humility, and he knows that he needs God's grace as much as any other man. That's something he's learned, and he rejoices in that knowledge. He knows that with the utmost certainty, without Christ's blood being shed for him, he's as damned as any poor man. So he rejoices that Christ's blood was shed for him, because his money couldn't buy him out of hell. His money can't get him into heaven, but he knows Christ's blood has done that for him. So he rejoices. That the Lord has put him down, where he doesn't trust in his riches like those men in Psalm 49, but he trusts in the blood of Jesus Christ. For maybe the first time in his life, he is utterly dependent on the mercy of another who is far higher than him. And he rejoices in that, that he is now dependent, but he's dependent on one who is mighty, one who can save, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Without free grace at the foot of the cross, The rich man learns that he has no hope in this world or the next. And so he rejoices that he's been made low. He rejoices that God's Word and the Lord Himself has taught him in his heart that riches are nothing. That the blood of Christ is everything. That he can't be redeemed by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. He rejoices in having stable and eternal riches in Christ, unlike the worldly wealth that he knows is being taxed away disappearing, mouths are grabbing it, and children are fighting over the will, and when he dies, it's in probate. But he knows that the riches God has given him are forever. Amen. And he rejoices in that, that he's been made low to see that. He's been brought so low that he knows that true success is godliness with contentment, not gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness plus gain does not equal success. It's godliness with contentment is great gain. And a rich brother... Learns that. Submits to it. Blessed by it and he rejoices over it. He knows the truth. His riches can't do him a thing. They can't add one breath to him. And so he rejoices. He knows what verse 11 is all about. That the sun, when it rises with a burning heat, withers the grass. The flower thereof disappears and the grace of the fashion of it disappears. He knows that... The luxurious way he may live and the comfortable way he may live is going to disappear when he dies. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. That 11th verse is not talking about people going to hell. That verse is talking about the comfortable and luxurious lifestyle of a rich man disappearing at death. It disappears a lot sooner than death, too, by by a few reasons that I just gave. The tax man cometh as surely as death cometh. And and, and hungry mouths. You know, Solomon said that... uh, As riches increase, so do the mouths that want to devour them. Yes. And so a rich man learns all that from the Bible. This isn't talking about rich men going to hell. This is talking about rich brothers who have learned the lesson that their riches are all going to disappear so they don't set their affection on them and they have real stability in life because they have been humbled down to the foot of the cross 
where their stability is having faith in God just like the poor man. Thank you, Lord. We'll jump over lesson four because we worked it we worked it well last Sunday. We'll come to lesson five, beginning at verse eighteen. I'm going to read verses eighteen through twenty one. It's hard for me to read the first four words and go on. But let's read these four verses. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Amen. Amen. We read Psalm 1 this morning for a reason, because it lines up so well with this little section here and the sections to follow that we'll get to in the second assembly about being doers of the word and not hearers only. We want to delight, meditate, and do the words of God. Well, let's come back to that 18th verse. In this fifth lesson, we, we, because we're theologically oriented, we get excited about verse 18, but the more important verses are verses 19 and 20 and 21, because they're telling us what we ought to do after God has done what He did in verse 18. But let's take a few minutes with verse 18. Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. There's about three positions we can take on James 1.18. We can take the position that would be popular and common today, and that is that the word begat means regeneration, and the word of truth means the Bible. So that we end up with decisional regeneration. I have to rely on a whole lot of previous teaching that you don't believe that, so we just blow it out the back door. We know from, well, listen, we, we, we know just from looking at the verse, it says, of his own will. Of his own will. If, if it's the Word of God and the begetting is your decision, that's your will. But we know what the Bible says, that it is not the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. We know that it's God that shows mercy according to His will, so then it is not of Him that willeth nor of Him that runneth. So we just, we just push that one aside. The world can run after that if they wish. But we know that James 1.18 is not teaching decisional regeneration by the authority of the rest of Scripture. The second position that can be taken is that the begetting here is not regeneration, but the begat here is initial conversion to the gospel. And the word of truth is the Bible. So that God, according to His own will, in His choice that He made from the beginning, sanctified with the Spirit and through the word, and through the word of God, converted men. We have an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15 where Paul said, I have begotten you through the gospel. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, uh, you've only got one father, because I have begotten you through the gospel. We do not believe in 1 Corinthians 4.15 that Paul is dealing with regeneration, but with begetting them, starting them, being the initial man involved in their first conversion to Christianity. And then after that came the other 10,000 instructors. We've been over 1 Corinthians 4.15 before. We're not confused by it. It doesn't move us. It doesn't tempt us toward decisional regeneration because Paul said, I have begotten you through the gospel. Because we go over to a place like Galatians chapter 4 where Paul said to the Galatians, 
I need to form Christ in you again. So see, that begetting over there in 1 Corinthians 4.15 can be repeated. Because Paul did it to the Galatians, then he found out he had to do it over again. And you don't ever have regeneration done over again, but you do have your conversion done over again. He initially converted the Galatians to believe that Jesus Christ and by himself was their means of justification, but they had added the work to the law, so he needed to form Christ in them again. That's the second position that can be taken on this passage. The third one is this, that the word begat is regeneration. And the word of truth is not the written word, but the living word, Jesus Christ himself. That's the one we've believed for a long time. It's the one I was taught. Until I see a whole lot of reason to move from it, I don't need to. I trust it. I love it. It leaves Jesus Christ as the Creator. See, we've got in this verse a couple of factors. And we're going to look at those very briefly, but time goes so fast. It says of His own will. Of His own will. So this is involving the will of God. And we had a brother read to us John chapter 5, where it said the will of God has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, who quickeneth whom He will. And so we look at that will. Then it says it's a creature here. There's only one being that's ever created. The Bible's never created anything. The Bible can't create. The Word of Truth can't create. It's not living. Jesus Christ is alive and abides forevermore, and He creates. In fact, let's quote a verse again, John 1.3. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. If something is created, if something is made, Jesus Christ did it. He is the executor of the will of God. He created all things. Begetting. What does the word beget mean? What The position that we're taking on it in James 1.18, of his own will. Now remember, I said there's two possibilities. I rule out the first one. That's impossible. There could be a second. We could, If somebody wanted to take a position on verse 18 that it's the written Word, and they tied in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and they tied in 1 Corinthians 4.15. We could abide that. I could abide that. Don't believe it's right, because I think it violates some of the terms here. But you would end up in the same place. And that is that God regenerates by Himself. That's what we have to protect. That God regenerates without the use of the preached Word. Now remember, if, if if you follow the passage with me, we've got a Word in verse 18... And we've got a word in verse 21. And in verse 21, he's telling them to receive this word. Now, have they received it or not? They need to receive some more of it. You'd be amazed at what some men write about these, these four verses. They write that in verse 21 is the instruction to get verse 18. Can you believe that? They write that 21 is the means to get verse 18. That is confusion. 18 precedes 21, logically, factually, and here in our chapter. Begetting means to be born of God. We could turn to passages. You already know that. God begets us when He creates in us a holy and righteous new nature that loves God, loves the things of God, and has the Word of God implanted within it. This begetting is according to God's own will. Look at those first four words. Of His own will. Thank you, Lord. And young people, this is why we have this church. We believe words like this. We don't skate over them. We don't look for a dynamic equivalent translation that would take them away or dilute them of His own will. It's not a combination of wills. It's His own will. I don't mean to yell at you, but it's His own will. It's not His will is trying. 
It's His will that all men should be saved, and He's waiting upon your will. It's His will that all sorts of men shall be saved, and they most certainly will be saved. Amen. He'll not lose a single one of all sorts of men that He intends to save. It's His will. It is not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God in John 1.13. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, so the Son quickeneth whom He will. John 5.21 So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. We believe that. We thank the Lord for that. It's God's own will. I've read Billy Graham who said, God can't save you against your will. I want to tell you something from God's Word. You better be thankful God did save you against your will. Because if God hadn't saved you against your will, you wouldn't be saved. Oh! There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that doeth good. There is none righteous. There is none that seeketh after God. Our wills are all together gone out of the way. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. If God didn't save against our wills, we wouldn't be saved. Thankfully, He's exercised His will on my behalf. Of His own will, begat He us. He regenerated us and, and created us in Christ Jesus unto good works, which we also had read to us this morning. Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth. This begetting as a new creature was executed according to God's will by Jesus Christ. If the word creature is involved, Jesus Christ is involved. Jesus Christ is the one that creates all things. Because Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh. The Word has created all things. The Word is the Creator. God's will, the way that God has presented Himself to us in the different personages, God's will has decreed something. The Word of God executes it, and the Holy Spirit is an instrument to that execution. For instance, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we read, The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So the Spirit of God was involved in creation. But by whom were all things made? The Word of God. All things were made by Him. All things were created by Jesus Christ. We believe that. So we see Jesus Christ in this verse. Now what is the Word of Truth? Why is it called the Word of Truth and why is it a small w? Are you saying the Word of Truth is the living Word, the Word of God? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God? Yep. That's what we say in a place like this where we have regeneration because we made a choice. We made a choice that the word begat means regeneration, not initial conversion like in 1 Corinthians 4.15. With that choice, and then the fact that it's of His own will, and that there's a creation involved, we choose the Word of Truth being Jesus Christ. Because we know that the other Word that we are to read and submit to is in verse 21. And it's there under a wherefore. Two wherefores. One in 19, one in 21, that are leading us to do something else with the written Word of God because of what was done by the Word of Truth. Now let's think a moment about the Word of Truth. Can Jesus Christ be justifiably called the Word of Truth? What is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and a name that the Bible's very proud of? The, the Word of God. You're, leaping, you're, going, you're too far ahead of me, brother. Slow down. The Word of God. We all know John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. That is a name for the divine nature of Jesus Christ. That is a name, I don't like these words, but you know what, you'll understand. The Word is the name of the second person in the Trinity. I don't like to number them. Right. Do you know why I don't like to number them? 
Because Jesus Christ is the everlasting Father, according to Isaiah 9, 6, and I don't like numbering them. But I, I do it just for you to remember that there's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Oh, where'd that verse come from? Is that 1 John 5, 7? We have another one, don't we? Where Jesus is called the Word of God. Do you know that He's called the Word? Is He ashamed of that name? Is it simply something used by John? Or do we get to the end of Revelation and find in Revelation 19.13 that He has a name written and it's on His thigh and it says, The Word of God. He is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God because that's the name of His divine nature. And that's the name of Him altogether because He's known under both names. Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, and the Word of God. Because He has the Word of God in such close union with Him, Jesus Christ can be called the Word of God. One of Jesus' principal names is the Word of God. And that Word created all things, both naturally and spiritually. When we look at a verse like this, you know, I do. I spend hours on verses like, I've worked on John 18 for 30 years. Back and forth. And I don't, not that I change, I mean, work on it, leave it for a few years. Work on it, leave it for a few years. Word of truth. But it's a small w. What you do to get comfort is to flip over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 4 and you just reestablish yourself that to take a position like this on this little phrase, word of truth, does not take a great deal of courage, does not take a great deal of faith because God has given us some other comforts. Do you know there are men that say that the Apostle John was the only one that ever called Jesus Christ the Word of God? I'll be slow to speak on what I think of those men. Hebrews 4.12, most of you are so familiar with this, you could quote it to me backwards, I hope. For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This verse is quoted. It is memorized by the preacher boys at Bob Jones University. It is quoted in pulpits. There are men that start off every sermon with Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God, as they open the book, for the Word of God is quick and powerful. Hebrews 4.12 doesn't have a single thing indirectly, directly, by metaphor, by analogy, by any connection to the written Bible. Amen. There isn't a thing in Hebrews 4.12 that is true of the written Bible. Right. Everything in Hebrews 4.12 is only true of the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And then verses 13 and 14 tell us exactly what verse 12 is about. Right. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. It shows you how poorly taught most seminary trained ministers are that they get up and tout. You can, you, you can go to commentaries and see commentaries running Hebrews 4.12 as the written Bible. You know, the written Word of Truth. No, it's Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Amen. The Word of God. We're told that plainly. And we trust Scripture against all the thoughts and all the ideas of all men. Because the context of verses 13 and 14 tell us it's Jesus Christ. And what's in verse 12 tells us it's Jesus Christ. Do do things like that thrill you? They should thrill your soul. That God has revealed, you know, in this little place, Hebrews 4.12, one of their favorite verses that they're totally wrong. Just like He has in Revelation 3.20. Their number two sugar stick for salvation, they're totally wrong. And so you look at Hebrews 4.12 and you gird up the loins of your mind. 
and you encourage yourself in the Lord that He's shown you something, it's a small W in Hebrews 4.12, isn't it? I wish it was a big W. No, I don't. Because I like having something they don't have. Doesn't that get you excited when you have something they don't have? And it doesn't, I don't mean that in a haughty way. I mean, thank you, Lord, for a gift of seeing a little W and knowing that it's Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. There weren't rules established at the time of the 1611 King James Bible for capitalization of names, words, nouns, pronouns pertaining to deity. Sometimes is it a big W? Yeah. Is John 1 1 a big W? Is Revelation 19.13 a big W? Yeah, I mean, a capital W, you know what I mean. Talking to third graders, first graders, kindergartners, maybe your children, maybe three-year-olds. Um, it's a big W, but here it is, and it's a small W, but without a shadow of a doubt, we know exactly what Hebrews 4.12 is talking about. He is alive and He is powerful. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you better be paying attention to Him according to the context of Hebrews 4 and not miss your rest because if you mess around and you don't believe, He is going to be moving against you. You know, it says in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. It tells us exactly who the Word of God is. Okay, Word of Truth. How about when it says the Word of Truth? Oh, could the Word of Truth actually be a name for Jesus Christ? Well, look at 1 John 1, 1. Before you go there, while you're turning, do you know John 14, 6? Jesus said, I am the, the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we come to 1 John 1, 1, and there's a little bit of help here, but we wouldn't need it. They put a big W on it, and I wish they hadn't, but they did, and the Lord providentially oversaw that. I trust Him. 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That eternal life is the word of God made flesh. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's called the word of life. It's easier for you because it's a capital W. But what if it wasn't? Would you be able to tell that our hands have handled? We have seen. And you would know that it was Jesus Christ, the eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested to us in the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ? I hope you would. Come back to James chapter 1. Now we've got the words, word of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Could the word of truth be a name for the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. When we see Him on His white horse and the name on His thigh is the word of God, what is He called? Faithful and true. He is the word of truth just like He's the Word of life. We make this choice because we've chosen for the word begat to mean regeneration, the word creature to mean creature, His own will, meaning the will of God, which was given to Christ to be the executor and creator of all things. So we understand James 1.18, of His own will, God's will, regenerated us by the Lord Jesus Christ for this end. These people that James was writing to in particular that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. James is writing to a unique group of people. They were the twelve tribes scattered abroad. They were some of the first Christians. They are the first fruits of New Testament Christians. They are the first fruits 
of God's regenerated ones under the new covenant. That we should be a kind of first fruits. Notice that James has put himself into the mix. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of all, of all the regenerated children of God that Jesus Christ is going to have under the new covenant. Remember? He said the hour is coming, has not been. The hour is coming. The hour is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. So he's talking about his regenerative power there. So there's going to be a whole lot regenerated, but these are the first fruits to Christ. These are the first fruits. Holding your hand there at James 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, the gospel, as you go to Ephesians 1, the gospel was first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, because God had His people taken out of the Jews first. And then it came to the Gentiles. And so there was this special class of regenerated, converted Jews that were the first fruits of Jesus Christ's creation under the New Testament. Uh, you know, it's a long sentence here that begins way back at verse 7. Let me start at verse 11. Paul is separating himself from the Galatian, the, the Gentiles of the Ephesians. He, so he's using we. Speaking of himself, the other apostles... And Jewish, watch, he switches from we. Verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. See, Paul, the other apostles, and Jews were the ones that first trusted in Christ. Verse 13, In whom ye also trusted. See, ye and also change, they're not first, they're second. They're, if, you, if you'll allow the expression second generation Christians as opposed to first generation. And right there we have a use of the word of truth being used for the written or preached word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's not why we're there, but that's the other place where the word, see we have our, we have our hands. Word of truth, word of truth, we, right, we try to rightly divide, make one the living word of God and the other the written word of God preached through the gospel. But that's not why we're here. Why we're here is to understand what does James mean when he says first fruits of his creatures? Because the the Jews, the ones scattered abroad that James was writing to were the first converts of the New Testament. And James is writing to them saying, God has regenerated you according to his own will through Jesus Christ, that you should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If there's anyone that's showing what a child of God should be, if there's any group of people that, that should live, like the children of God, it should be you Jews who are the first fruits of His creatures. So we come to verse 19. Wherefore? You can imagine what that wherefore is there for because He's drawing a conclusion from what He has just said. God has regenerated us according to His own will that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The first fruits was a feast that they held in Israel. The very first ripe fruit that you had, you took a sheaf of it and took it, offered it up to God as a sacrifice for what you believed was coming. And see, there's a whole lot more coming after these first fruits. We came after these first fruits. But James is appealing to these Jews on the basis of their privileged position as the first ones to be born again and converted. And that they should be living in a way that is that matches that exalted position. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
Three simple rules for living worthy of God's regeneration. If God has regenerated us, this is how we ought to live. Three simple rules, but they are three hindrances to hearing the Word of God. In verses 19 through 21, we are going to see some hindrances to the Word of God because He's going to tell us with meekness to receive the written Word of God in verse 21. Verses 22 through the end of the chapter will be being doers of the Word and not hearers only. So first of all, James teaches, what should we be like to hear the Word of God well, and then once we hear it, we ought to do it. Because he's speaking here of receiving the Word of God. But these are also three rules of wisdom. But these three rules of wisdom, when they're applied toward God and His preachers and His preaching and His Word, they help us receive it with meekness. Because if you don't receive the written Word of God with meekness, you're not going to prosper or benefit by it. The Lord tells us to come trembling to His Word. Verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, since God has chosen you out of a nation that were not the people of God and has made you the people of God, because God has regenerated you according to His own will, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. What precious three rules. To fulfill God's purpose in our regeneration, we should be swift to hear. How many ears do you have? Two. How many mouths do you have? One. What condition are your ears in all the time? Open. On. They're open. But do you know what? God's given you a fence, two fence, a double fence of your teeth to lock your tongue in. Keep it shut. Just just a few little side thoughts on ears and tongue. The Lord says, swift to hear. We should be eager to hear. The rule of wisdom in the book of Proverbs is, if you're a wise man, you love to be taught. You do not want to teach. You want to be taught. That is the rule of wisdom. You, the, the verses are, bow down your ear. Solomon is saying to his son, humble yourself. And come and hear. A wise man hears and increases in knowledge. That is a rule of wisdom. The person that likes to hear themselves talk too much are never going to be very wise because they squander the only way they can be wise. Talking has never made anyone wise. It cannot. The only way you can be wise is to hear. So it is swift to hear. That works in every relationship. Children. When your father sits you down and talks to you, be swift to hear. Don't be thinking, but, 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 but daddy, but, but mommy. See, you're wanting to talk. Oh, I see you, Sarah. I'm not picking on you. You know, that's what we, we start to think of what we're going to say already. Our parents sit us down and tell us something, and instead of being swift to hear, we're swift to speak. Oh, these are three good rules, aren't they? These three good rules can get a hold of your life and change you to please God more perfectly. Swift to hear. Wife, when your husband asks you to do something, why does a butt fly out? Why do you want to tell him that there's all these extenuating circumstances that justify her rebelling against you? Why don't you be swift to hear and listen to everything he has to say before you start to correct him? When you go to work, Those of you that are at work, when the Bible says don't answer again, 
It means to be swift to hear what your boss is asking for instead of answering again, being swift to talk. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, eager to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. You have just put a mountain in front of us. Help us cast it into the sea by giving us wisdom to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. I hope you children will never forget. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And let it govern you in all of your relationships. And especially govern you when it comes to the Word of God and it being preached to you. Or someone in this church bringing the Word of God to bear on your life and correcting you by it. Be swift to hear. Slow to speak. And don't get angry. Don't get upset. Be slow to wrath as well. Wise man. Wise men love to hear. They want to hear more. They will separate themselves from all other activities of life in order to intermeddle with all wisdom by sitting down and listening and wanting to hear God's Word. Do you remember Nehemiah chapter 8? All the people of God gathered themselves before the water gate with one mind. Ezra, get that book out here. Get up on that pulpit. They didn't say it. They were were respectful. Get up on that pulpit and read it to us from morning till midday. Do you remember remember the passage I'm talking about? Nehemiah chapter 8? Were they swift to hear? Oh, they wanted to hear. They stood there all day. And when he was done explaining it to them, giving the sense and caused them to understand it, they wanted to throw a party. And then what did they say? Can we do this again tomorrow? Swift to hear. Oh, they wanted to hear. Children. There was a great man in the Bible. He's one of God's five great men. His name was Samuel. Samuel was in his bed. He heard a voice. Samuel? Samuel! He went and told Eli about it. He was given some advice. When he heard that voice, what did he say? Speak, Lord. For thy servant heareth, swift to hear. How about the Italian band man? Cornelius. He told Peter, as Peter came into a house jam-packed full of Gentiles, Cornelius' wife, children, household, servants, and soldiers are all standing there. And Cornelius said, we are all gathered together today to, 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 to hear whatsoever. God hath commanded thee. Oh, that is swift to hear. Don't you? He didn't try to tell Peter one single thing about being an Italian. He didn't try to tell him about being a Roman. He didn't try to make Peter feel guilty for not being a Roman citizen. He said, you tell us whatever God's commanded you, and we are all here to hear it. And it didn't take but a little bit of preaching, and they were getting baptized. They were swift to hear, brethren. Let's do it in our relationships, but let's especially do it as we face the Word of God and what it says to us. Jesus said, after He gave the parable of the sower, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For he that hath, to him shall be given more. And he that hath not, shall be taken away even that which he think he hath. God will strip you naked and leave you confused 
about the Bible unless you pay attention and give heed and diligence to hearing well. Let's be swift to hear, especially when it comes to the Word of God and its instruction to us. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. We're going to have to end right here. We'll come right back and jump right back in where we are leaving off right now. We should be swift to hear in all of our relationships, especially those that involve authority. Children should be swift to hear their parents. Mom and Dad, tell me whatever you want me to do. There are children like this in our church. Mom and Dad, just tell me what you want me to do, and that's what I'll do. If you don't want me to like so-and-so, and you want me to like so-and-so, that's what I'll do. If you don't want me to have this job, that's what I'll do. Those children are special in the sight of God. They are swift to hear. There are wives in this church. Husband, whatever you want me to do. If you say jump, all I'm going to say is how high. Do you mind if I'm swift in saying that? No, we're not. They're swift to hear their husbands. They are special in the sight of God. There are employees in this room that are swift to hear their masters. When their masters say jump, they're willing to say how high. They want to do whatever their master asks them to do without answering again. They're special in the sight of God. Because this rule works in all relationships. And you know we want to be swift to hear whatever our government says to us and obey obey every ordinance of man that he's given. We'll come back. Lord, help us. Amen.